0: Welcome to the Uppercase Podcast, where we talk to our nation's best teachers, brought to you by Uppercase, a collaborative mobile app for teachers to get answers from experts. Today on the podcast, we have uppercase expert Gina Pepin. So Gina, I'm just going to kick it to you to introduce yourself.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Gina Pepin. I live in Upper Michigan. I teach in a rural elementary building with just first and second graders, and I am a reading specialist. I also um, teach higher education courses for literacy, graduate literacy courses, and I'm a university supervisor for um, a university here in Upper Michigan. I'm happy to be here today. Thanks for having me.
0: Amazing. So where I wanted to start, Gina, is actually from the time you decided to become a teacher first of all like how long you've been teaching and then what really inspired you to to start teaching
1: well i think just as a child i just loved playing school i do not have anyone in my family that is in education at all my sister went to law school and my dad worked for a phone company and my mom was an insurance person so i was you know there really wasn't any references um that i guess I remember answering this in an essay one time for Regional <laughs> Teacher of the Year. And it's like, what? who inspired you? And I really am, can confidently say that it never was one specific person, place, or event. But it's just kind of been an ongoing, um, I, I guess, um, blessing of being, being a part and of the profession and just meeting so many different people and uh, truly as, as in today, just being able to you know access other people across the country through technology has really um, just made me even more excited and want to be even more a part of it because living way up here in Upper Michigan, you know, our resources were limited. So I think that's definitely a big piece of it, and um, I think that another piece is just when you start to get comfortable and you think that you know you have the confidence and the level of expertise things like covid happen and then you you look at you know you look at the things you used to do in the research and that's when it's i think it's such a critical time to reach out to others and hey what's how's it how's it going in your area what's working for you and this is a great time for us to be able to lean on one another because I think that even with nearly 30 years in, I struggle with um, being able to just pull that resource off the shelf right now and to take that research and say, oh, you know, for 20 years, this has worked. But in in my experience in the last two to three years, the kids sitting in front of me, those students right now, um, it's like a puzzle every single day, just trying to put pieces together that I know. And I think that leaning on experts and um insight and trying to collaboratively come up with ways that we can meet the needs of our today's students I think is is a pretty powerful um, position to be in. and so it makes me want to stay in it even longer.
0: <laughs> but it's interesting too because I feel like the profession can be so isolating for people, I- right? Um, I know when I taught a long time ago, I you know, I really sort of just st- stuck to the four walls of my classroom. It was hard to look it out because I was just like trying to, you know, make day to day work with students. So I'm curious um, to dive into a little bit about how you collaborate with others, both in your building, but also otherwise.
1: So that's one of the things that I am 100% guilty of. S- instead of going into the lunchroom or spending, you know, a half hour after the school day is done. Um, I'm diving into research or, you know, hopping onto my online classes. And yeah. I think that teaching those online classes with graduate level students, mm-hmm. and I think I learn just as much from them as I'm hoping that they learn from me because I can't wait to hear their response to a particular discussion prompt or something like that and shared resources and just finding something that someone's working that may be that one link Mm. to helping another student. So networking through there, I think that um, being able to be a part of the Regional Teacher of the Year twice now, this has built my networking system um, so beautifully. And I feel like even from 2018, 2019, 400 doors have opened for me in regards to opportunities to network and to provide insight, and most of all, to gain new resources for myself, right? Mm-hmm. So I think at the state level, the national level, one of the universities that I teach with, teach at um, both liter- both of the two universities I am at are graduate literacy courses, and then I'm a university supervisor for grad um, teacher candidates. Mm-hmm. One's in upper Michigan, and then the other one's in Arizona. So it's Grand Canyon University. So I don't have a whole lot of exposure with English second language students, let alone adults that are, you know, second language. So that part and is always a learning process for me. So those networking pieces, I think I have a large majority of the nation covered <laughs> just through those two universities, I think. Um, and of course, um, work groups and different things like that at the national level, um, speaking engagements, presentations. And then of course my affiliation with Scholastic has provided a lot of um, opportunities to meet educators and other Title I folks, directors, superintendents, administrators, and things as well just by presenting virtually for two years and then um,
0: a couple of places um, in person as well. So great. And I do want to talk about the book you wrote, because you wrote a book as well, uh, called <laughs> The Power of Joyful Reading, uh, Help Your Young Readers sort of Success. So I, I want to dig into that. But before we get to the book, I actually want to spend a bit of time um, on your work as a reading specialist, because it's quite extraordinary. And your passion is really about creating these joyful and engaging reading experiences for students. So tell us a little bit about how you became passionate about this particular topic and how you create a joyful experience like what does that actually mean for reading in the classroom so um, several years ago we were
1: working on creating an online platform where families could possibly access um, teachers reading stories out loud and as we learned about all of the logistics of that right and the copyright I had reached out to several authors, and um, that's when, um, let's see, Todd Parr had reached back to me and said, you know, I'm going to give you permission. and um, another author had taught me that sometimes they don't have the rights, you have to contact the publisher. Well, long story short is Eric Litwin actually himself called me back. And he was really interested in my experiences as a teacher in the field. He himself was a teacher years ago, a third grade teacher. And so we started to build these conversations. And um, we would talk on, on the phone, and he would play the guitar. And we'd talk about just how there's this intensive need for intervention, which we all know and catching kids up. And of course, this is post COVID or before COVID. Mm -hmm. And we talked like, what does that look like? What is it? And um, my role as a reading intervention is, is really kind of a yucky role. Like the kids come in and they don't like me. They don't want to be there. It's intensive. It's hard. I'm that tier three person where we've, you know, we've, highly tracked them. We've really, really monitored them in, you know, several different types of groups, mixed abilities, and, you know, same ability, trying to really strategically fill in those holes, right? Those gaps. And I'm the last, is it a difficulty or is it a true disability? Mm -hmm. And six weeks of intensive intervention. And I just, people are crying. People are upset. It's, it's really, really hard. You know, it's scripted. It's, um, it's, you know, it's, there isn't a second wasted. So there, there isn't always a time to build those relationships. And so, um, taking a step back Mm -hmm. and saying, you know, even though the research says I have to script this for so long, having those conversations with Eric and just saying, gosh, I just don't like being that person. And I and I know, I've taught first grade for many years and I know what it's like to sing the walls. And the kids just like jump up because they can't wait to do something. And they come into my room and they're like, oh, I gotta read a book. <laughs> they just know the routine, the routine, right? But no one's excited, no one's happy. They wanna tell me all about, Something that happened at night, or you know, something like that. So, one of the things that I've been really working on hard, even more so in the last two years, is I've collaborated with our occupational therapist and our, our multidisciplinary team, and we put together um, intervention practices that weave in joyful. It's a even if it's a two minute social emotional check in, and we track it so it's kind of a, then becomes a tier two. So we can say, oh, we've noticed that so-and-so has reported this for many days. And then we don't always ask them their why, mm. but they have the option of giving us a why. So we just say, do you want to share your why? They say yes or no. We move on. You know, the groups are small. If it's something concerning, we say, we just kind of stop and we say, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Let's talk about this in a little bit and then we move on. So then I can report those that to the right people, right? That can dig a little bit deeper and investigate that um that particular comment. But it just gives them a few minutes to check in and I feel like just that small tweak has already created that relationship. It makes them feel valued, it makes them feel important, and then it brings a little bit more joy because you know, it's it's The SEL check-in is we have a little wheel with these cute little friendly colorful faces. And so sometimes just those visual pieces can make a big difference, make a big difference. Mm -hmm. I've also woven into intervention more joyful pieces um, and classroom teachers are doing some of this as well as um, by the lead of our occupational therapist. It's okay to not have to sit at a table in chairs to choral read the the program book that we're doing together or the passage right now we allow students to lay on their bellies on a cot. um, Or if they can sit on some sort of flexible seating. And I also have like a futon in my room where some students um, with attention issues or have had some trauma in their life when their whole body is grounded Mm -hmm. and touching on some sort of plane, they can go from eight words to 18 words. Just wow. like that. So it's super cool. And they know. And I actually tell them, even though they're a first or second grader, here's what your body will do. Your body will be able to concentrate on this passage better. And you won't have all of that, you know, external um sensory things coming in. And it has made a really huge difference. So now the students come in and they think, "Oh, I get the chair or the cot or the couch," and they don't really think about how hard it is to get the words off the page of that passage. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just those little tweaks already have made a huge difference. And
0: um, but you're I really creating like a the, the environment right matters so much, right? And it really does. You're and, almost like setting the safe space up for them, which is really interesting, and it. And just to confirm
1: that it can literally take less than a minute to do any of these quick transitions and these different things as to where, you know, traditionally, tier three, sit at the desk, read the passage. You know, I I read, you know, I read my, my little directions. You do what you're supposed to do, um, because that's what the research shows works, right? Um, the year after COVID, we came back and. There's a title team of five fo- um, in addition to me that are part of our elementary building. And we sat down with our school psychologist and I'm like, the data's is just it's not moving. It's stagnant. What can we do? And I said, can we look at research-based strategies and bring some joy back into these kids' lives because we're not we're not getting them where we need them to be. And that's in tier two, that's in tier three, that's in differentiated instruction in the classroom. It's all of these avenues. And so we did a teacher perception study uh, survey and asked teachers, you know, um, when students go and come back from pull-out groups or you can observe them in push-in groups in the classroom, what do you see? And so it's just a quick little survey what's your perception? Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they resistant? Just simple things like that. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed any growth? And then we did a post survey of the exact same survey. Um, after six weeks of taking tier two programs out and doing strategies. So we did repeated readings. We added a voice jar for prosody, which is a whole bunch of different voices. And then, um, we, read, we added in Reader's Theater. And this was at Tier 2, and our scores went up a lot. And so we added st- research-based strategies rather than a research-based program. And it was enough, and it made such a difference. The kids were excited. Then during one of our PEP assemblies, we allowed the students to do one of their Reader's Theaters um, in front of the assembly, the group that um, had volunteered there was two, there were two groups actually um, parent son and props we had all kinds of things um, that at that time there were still some mandates where you know what you were allowed to have on and what and whatnot and there were partial masks and a few things going on like that but um it still brought back the joy of learning and I think it really made a big difference and so the last year or two we've started off the year traditionally and I think right now, is usually when we get to the point where we say, ooh, we have to make a change. And that's usually when we back in some really significant joy factors. So I just, I know learning is important, but I think that if kids can, you know, if kids learn behaviors, if they learn, you know, how to break a word down, how to break it into sounds, how to manipulate the sounds how to do all of those early literacy pieces? Sometimes we're just teaching them behaviors. And I'm kind of this is kind of my soapbox a lot at school. We have done a really really good job of teaching kids to tell us the details from a story. We're, we 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 do a really really good job of of you know syllable separation and and division and um, first sound isolation. But they there's no application mm. like what is the biggest, what is the big, what's the story about? Yeah. Like you told me five characters, right? So all of a sudden we've zoomed into so many microscopic things that we forgot to like, what, what's the big picture look like? And um, what is it going to look like in the newspaper? That word, what is that word going to look like on a billboard? Different fonts, different sizes, things like that. Um, So again, just bringing, just bringing back the joy of learning and um what makes sense to the students that are in front of you.
0: Mm, I love that. Tell us about your book too, because I think the book obviously captures a lot of this. It seems like it's very tangible as well. Like there's actual strategies and actual uh, pieces that teachers can run with. So talk to us a little bit about sort of how some of these pieces are reflected in that book. And, and also, I guess what inspired you to, to write a whole book on uh, this, because it's exciting. So um, it was actually
1: Eric's idea. And of course, I was totally honored that he wanted to do this. And it was his first professional development book. And it was during the entire lockdown of like when the world shut down. And so we were putting things together and we worked with our editor, Lois Bridges, who was the vice president at Scholastic Professional Development. and She left shortly after for Bring Me a Book. But yeah. um, she was a big advocate of joy, especially at the time during COVID, because we knew that students were struggling to even connect with anybody at that's at this point, especially because it was literally during lockdown and they kind of pushed our book through really, really fast. We wrote it during lockdown and it was published that summer. So they, they just really felt that there was a strong need. I think with anything, you know, there's there's a lot of reading theories, and I think that the most important thing is is just to know your students. Just going back to the, that old theory is who are they, what do they need, and what are they responding to? What is going to make them um, move and become motivated and engaged and and participate? So we know that hard things right now really kids are still kind of traumatized from so many things. And in addition to, you know, COVID and everyone's still a little bit in survival mode, at least in the population in our area. Mm-hmm. And I think, I know that students, we wanted to actually just be able to do a very easy make and take handbook. Like, okay, early educators, early elementary teachers, you um, Providers, anybody that would be useful, does open it up. What can I do? Mm -hmm. And just reiterate the fact that um, fun doesn't mean that it's not strategic. I think that was one of our really main points, right? I, you know, you can you can be very strategic. You can weave things together, and you can integrate things more. easier than people really think it is and so that's kind of what we wanted to capture like that you can create joy through music and art and you know visual prints and interaction and in the same time you're building social emotional uh, resiliency you're talking about difficult things you're doing difficult tasks Mm -hmm. and the children aren't even realizing it because they are participating and really driving a lot of their own learning in a way so you know i think that it's it's a pretty powerful way and and i've seen it work especially now mm-hmm. and being able to take all of those theories <laughs> and weave them strategically intentionally and purposefully in a way where students are you know have a growth mindset they have a little bit of grit they have resilience skills they and they're able to not only learn those really small sub skills, but then be able to apply it and make sense of the world around them, I think is really one of the biggest things they need to be able to do. And it does, it takes a concoction of all of those things. And Mm -hmm. some students need more and some students need, you know, a lot less. So I think having resources and having that um, something as simple as joy, right? And music and like, it's free, (laughs) And I think that is another part that we were really ecstatic about. This isn't another curriculum. This isn't another anything. It's just how can you take what you have, what you have to teach? Some districts are really, really, you know, really, there's no gray areas. Like it's black and white. This is what you're teaching. This is what page you're on. This is your pacing guide. Okay, but let me just tell you the way that you can relay that information to your students, how they can practice it. Um, can just in 30 seconds that shift you can make it so much
0: more powerful. It's almost the strategy of the how, right? Regardless right. of what, yeah, right,
1: right. And not, you know, one of the biggest fears when we were working on this book is, I just kept saying to Eric, "Is I know what teachers are going to say." And they're like, "Don't give me one more thing. Don't give me one more thing right now. Like I can't add. I've got a lot on my plate. What?" Is give me something that's super easy. So I think the way that the book was designed, which was really cool, is he would give a little bit of the the theory pieces and then I would talk about the application. And so it, you know, there, some things weren't really new to some people. Mm -hmm. I think it was just a reiteration of like, this really does work. And we can go back to some of those things and try it. Like, why not? Right. Why yeah. not try it if it reaches somebody or a majority of your students? And today it might work, but, so, and, you know, and by the end of the year, it might not work anymore. Mm-hmm. But having a toolbox that's free and easy and something that we can all do if we just shift our own mindset, right? Our own mindset and um, our own approaches.
0: I feel like some of these strategies would also be relevant for parents. I guess I yeah. think I have a piece learning how to read right now. And it's, it's just interesting to watch that process. And I think parents are not often equipped with sort no of necessary tools because why would they be right? Just like who, right. who has taught them how to teach a child, how to read, Like right. uh, you see this being applicable to parents.
1: So absolutely. I've, and I have actually contracted with our great start program for 10, 11 years, right. That where we, I have taught the, um, the programs through I mean, through Scholastic and through the doctors, where they write prescriptions for the the children to get free books, and then um, we bring them to a small session where we have a family literacy camp. And we and I actually do the program, and we teach them how to read. Like this is how you this is how you segment words. This is how you break them into pieces. This is how you help them break a word into chunks and different things like that. Kind of those early literacy building blocks. And they use things like talking as teaching programs and like give them all kinds of little cards, talk to them when they're in the laundromat, talk this, here are some prompts, talk to them about um, ABCs, talk to them about their laundry, talk to them about um, food, all those kinds of things. Parents don't necessarily always have those resources and they forget how important it is to talk to them not necessarily like an adult, but to have to talk in complete sentences mm-hmm. and um not abbreviate like a lot of technology does, and to have back and forth conversations with your child every single night. The one thing that I found the most interesting is um I think Scholastic had a study several years ago that most read alouds at home stop after the age of eight. Interesting. Because the child starts to read, siblings start to read, and you say, you know, go read to your brother while I'm, you know, doing this and um, read him a story. And, you know, sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't always happen. And the siblings aren't always one you can count on either to get that done. So when I meet with people, families, even recently, I just we just met with a family um, as a staffing and. They were, you know, really adamant about their child reading a, a rule, a, like a an old fashioned text, right? That they had from when they were growing up, and and I just said, it's okay, like it's okay to just discard that for a while because it sounds like it's too hard, right? And and we don't need to do hard at home. We just need to yeah. kind of build, re like practice the skills that we learn and that we can do independently is more so it's not instructional time at home and that's okay for the most part right mm. but the most important thing you can do is read to your child you read to your child no matter how old they are mm. and because there is more there's more power in a student hearing a fluent reader at least three times a day than it is for them to try and struggle and get words off of a page, because being able to hear what that fluent reader sounds like is yeah. much more powerful. So I, I always share, if you can't do it, get them on Storyline online, the Actors Guild, those folks are beautiful. And it doesn't mean allow them to spend hours on it, right? But just, they're going to hear it at school, hear it from you. Um, I even wrote a uh, article last, the, last spring, I believe, for Scholastic. And there's resources on my website as well. And it's for after school fun, literacy fun. And it was just five easy ways to integrate literacy into your mornings or after school. Just simple, simple, simple ways to do it without even having to do anything extra. Mm-hmm. So there's some ideas there too,
0: but um, families. make makes them yeah. for families too, right? I mean, if they feel like it's more accessible for them, I think they're more likely oh. to sort of like take a strategy and do it, you yep. know, school or in the morning or whenever it is, um, like that there's sort of these bite-sized ways to, to do that.
1: Yes, for sure. And, and, and again, I think just confirming what they are doing at home, you know, something is always better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And even just talking to kids, have them write your grocery list, have your, uh, my mom, my dad, at the end of kindergarten, they had a big picnic when the kindergartners were done and all three of our kids um, he would ask them to write what they wanted from the local sub shop and they'd put it in a little list and to this day he has them hung up in a little frame all three of them have their list of what they want on their sub and and it is the coolest thing ever simple things like that right You, you know extended family regular family you know is a is another word building skill and they're there are a lot of ways that you can um, incorporate things into homes and just teaching families some of those really easy tricks. They go, oh, <laughs> or they may already be doing it. And I think just that confirmation always helps too.
0: Yeah, I love that. I wanted to dig in. So you you had spoken a bit about the community where you live and teach, um, and you, you mentioned it's quite, quite rural. Um, so I wanted to talk about that a bit because I know that there's many rural teachers listening I wanted to hear a bit about some of what you perceive as some of the challenges and then what some of the benefits are to working and teaching in in a rural community where you are. One of the biggest
1: challenges that we had faced lately was, of course, the technology with COVID, like during and after, and just trying to communicate with parents and getting equitable pieces to families so that they too could have um the technology and the resources that they needed. We um have several spots in the UP where there is a, a 20, 30 minute spans of no internet or no um phone service. So um in even um, some of the K-12 buildings, I used to teach in one that's about half hour from here and you can only get satellite internet and things like that. And it's very, very costly. And out there, the bus ride to school, there was about one student per square mile. And there were 240 you know, kids or so. And so being on a bus for almost, you know, an hour to two hours every single day. And those a lot of those students were working on farms and they had their duties at home,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, prior to school even starting. Yeah, and sitting on a bus. So I think those things were really significant in in that particular school district. Mm-hmm. Um, most definitely. Um, I think resources resources are a lot tougher up here, in, in a way, but, you know, getting materials, classroom materials, even. I think um jackets, hats, mittens, gloves, like some of those just daily necessities. We have a lot of students that we do fundraisers and local organizations donate those types of things. Um, for several years, I remember having a clothes closet for the students so we could have a holiday concert. And um, we send a lot of food boxes home during the holidays. We have a lot of... um different things like that. So a lot of the just the daily necessities, backpacks, pencils, crayons, a lot of those things. Um, we have wonderful programs around here that support the families and the kids around here. But at the same time, it's always a need. And it's really significant in that regard. We don't have language barriers or a lot of diversity as far as demographics. I um, in that's not always a challenge it rarely for us at all but once in a while if we do have a student that comes in and for example we had a um Hong Kong Hong Kong buffet open and the family spoke Mandarin Chinese and we didn't really have anyone trained as a resource so you know trying to gather those resources across Upper Michigan I think it's really one of those things that we wanted to really focus on and um, that was many years ago but it's still, Seems to be um a pro- you know a challenge I think for our area. Mm-hmm. One of the um one of the advocacy programs that I'm working on right now is a program called Ride and Read, and it kind of stems off of creating meaningful opportunities for language and literacy experiences because we have families that travel. So if your child is in sports, you're traveling one, two, three hours. And that's even for high school sports around here. So if not, then you're in travel ball. And so families travel. My husband and I, we drove to Wisconsin, I think for the first three or four summers with you know, with our kids and then downstate and Ohio for the last. And that's hours. And I mean, that's six to 12 hours, right from up here. So I think one of the biggest barriers is um, materials that families can use and take with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Split family homes is another thing. And being able to be able to have those materials readily accessible um, to them as well and I'm sure that that's you know a challenge in many areas as well but when you're traveling you know an hour from one parent to another parent sometimes that can be even more challenging and to me it's a lot of valuable time lost like oh my goodness in your car let's you know let's do some rhyming let's talk about you know Alliteration. Let's read a textbook together. Let's read a really fun story together. Let's get out the voice jar. You know how can what can we do to make that time in the car really, really purposeful and strategic, yet really joyful and fun as well? So I think that that's one of um one of uh one of the really big challenges in, in enlightening families and um, encouraging them to make every minute optimal, mm-hmm. so that the um, short time that we do have with our kids can be really purposeful and, um, and really help them be successful in so many ways.
0: I love that. You, you're talking a lot about, uh, the voice star, which I love. (laughs) I watched it the other day, the video you did about it, which is so cool. Um, but I want to know too, like where you learn some of these really cool techniques. I mean, I feel like there's resources, obviously, that you lean on. Um, If I were a new um, teacher heading into to to teach literacy, what would you recommend in terms of like, I don't know, three or four really awesome resources that you've leaned on in your career?
1: I think resources can be most definitely people.
0: Yeah, I love
1: that. Right. I think people are, to me, are kind of like research experts every single day. So, you know, really stemming on that idea of best practices, the people in the field really know what's going on, right? And I think that that's one of the reasons I will have such a hard time leaving K-12 down the road. And I know someday I need to retire to go to higher ed. (laughs) But I think being that, being able to take all of those higher ed pieces and then, you know, taking that and, and being able to share that with others i think people are they really know what's what's working what's not and what's even like i'd mentioned before is one grade or one area or you know demographic place in the world it may be working in others it may not or i think so people definitely is something that build networks find those people that are passionate um, find the people that you'll know, the people that always are excited about something, even when there's a thousand other negative things kind of swimming around them. You'll you'll know who they are. And I think materials, a, a simple toolbox. And I think that through the Great Start Family Literacy pieces, this Read and Rise, um, our, our reading month, we have created over the past 10, 11 years, kind of this parent academy. We've taken a simple drawstring bag and we've put them and put in these bags and which is part of this Ride and Read program too. Just this simple toolbox of teaching tools. And I think you can use them with and for everything. They are um, words, words, like Wonderful words where you can do word work and you can rhyme with them, you can take them apart, you can get to know them. Um, words, a puppet. It doesn't matter how old you are. I'm sorry, but puppets are fun. (laughs) You puppets can have difficult conversations, puppets can read a story, puppets can do alliteration, puppet puppets can take the pressure off of a child or an adult, and they can turn it into something magical. And you know, it can be a finger puppet, it can be a sock puppet, it can be anything. Puppets can do anything that you don't want to do, which I think has shown to have some pretty powerful attributes, right? Mm. The next thing is, I, Play-Doh, play or whatever version of play People don't realize how much you can do with Play-Doh. Play-Doh can be used, it's... um. It's a century piece, right? It can form letters. You can make words. You can do a story retell with Play-Doh. One of the coolest things ever is having a, a child or a student retell a story with Play-Doh. See if they pick the characters. P- see if they pick the setting. Like what are, Maybe they pick words, right? Play-Doh is amazing. Play-Doh can You can do anything and everything with Play-Doh. Um, Play-Doh, we've also used it where you roll it into really thin snake snakes and you do um scooping or phrasing so it's teaching kids how to not read like a robot but mm-hmm. to read two three words at a time like linking prepositional phrases we've used play-doh for that too and you can do that in a car in a house <laughs> anywhere that makes sense to you
0: so i think that's another really important piece i or- love Simple tools, though, that it's it's not like you have to go run out and, and oh find, like a ton of stuff, right? It's like something oh. very simple can actually go a very long way.
1: And a dry erase board mm-hmm. with magnetic letters, I think, and, and numbers can you can I mean I could talk for hours about all of the things that you could truly do with those, and um I think just being able to be creative with each of these things is really powerful, and a dry erase board can be even used, you know, all those things can be used at the secondary level too. There are ways to incorporate them into, you know, zero, age one, all the way, you know, through age 20, as well as the diverse needs of students with um, different disabilities, or they need some, you know, different accommodations or modifications to their excellent tools. And they're easy and they're cheap and you can buy them in bulk and you can just about find them anywhere.
0: I love that. You're clearly very passionate about uh, <laughs> reading. I just love, I I love watching some Thank of your you. videos too on uppercase. Cause it's like, you know, the, they're very tangible in terms of you feel like you could actually like take that right. and go to tomorrow. Um, Thank you. So I wanted to dig in well, one other aspect that you're, I know you're really passionate about is mentorship and teaching other teachers. Um, so you earned a doctorate in teacher leadership yes. um, and you mentor teachers of all ages um, you organize and supervise a team of paraprofessionals, right? Um, yeah. So I'm curious, and, and then also your online literacy course that I, you've you've been teaching for many years. Um, so I, I wanted to dig in on sort of this, uh, what you're seeing with new teachers in the profession in terms of um, really what it takes to be a teacher today. I mean, I think the profession has changed so much over the past many years, especially with covid Um, so I'm curious sort of what you're seeing in, um, teachers coming to the profession today and sort of what your advice is to them as they, as they start this journey.
1: I think, you know, one of the most important things you can do is, is find a really good in-house mentor too. And someone that you can ask those questions that you weren't, you know, that you're hesitant on, on knowing and doing, I find that a lot of teachers come into the field, in the last several years um questioning their own abilities in the Mm -hmm. sense where if anything you're here for a reason you you know you've made it this far right student teaching to and substitute teaching to me were the hardest times of my life (laughs) i will get nine more doctorates before like i would go through some of those things again and i've never really had to sob very much but I know that's like really difficult so Making it through student teaching, I think is really challenging. And I think taking what you know and what you've experienced so far, student teachers need to just come in with some confidence. And of and of course, there are a couple that are a little overconfident. So having an open mind, mm-hmm. also knowing a lot of teachers are afraid to get in trouble. Like there's this overwhelming sense. And I find this across the board across the nation afraid to get in trouble afraid that they're not doing the district adopted curriculum you know they're they're afraid to make a mistake they're afraid to accommodate they're afraid to, to make accommodations and they're they're afraid of saying something wrong to parents so i often you know will have new teachers in my room throughout the day and be like, is, can you just check this for me really quick? Like, does this make sense? We we are passionate a bit about what we do because we're educators, right? And sometimes we feel, I, I notice young teachers really feeling like they have to give this whole rationale as to why they're doing something mm-hmm. and to just let them know that you know, this is part of my practice. And sometimes less is more when relaying um, you don't have to defend what you're what you're doing to a parent, and that there are experts and teachers in your building that most definitely would sit down with you and this family to help them better understand because it's most of these things are school pra- processes. Your room is school is class practice, right? So there's a big difference between that. Um, I find myself talking to teachers a lot about accommodations. They're like, well, I just don't know. You know, is that okay? Can I do that? Absolutely. Whatever you do, just document. And I just tell them that all the time. If one of the teachers I remember with one of my children, one of my oldest daughter, she'd get really panicky. And she didn't need 25 problems to demonstrate that she understood it. Right. So -hmm. the teacher literally, and I remember this was years ago. She said to my husband and I, well, I just tell her pick nine, pick nine, pick eight or nine of them. So then she has choice, little agency, you know, in there as well. And then if she gets them all wrong, she will just hand it. She would hand it back to her and she would say, um, You know, seven of these are wrong. They're not marked which ones. Mm. Nothing was marked. Seven of these are wrong, but you did really good on two of them. You know, after recess, let's, you know, I'm going to give you time to see if you can figure that out. And she would. And so it's just about like really knowing who your students are, Mm. what are their strengths, playing on those strengths. And then that one little one or two little tweaks helped her learn significantly well. Like, had you made her do all 25 problems, she was going to shut down after number five, right? Just because she couldn't remember, you know, all those processes. And I, you know, knowing that not everyone needs the same thing Mm. and that it's okay to try something and it isn't going to work. So you need to just reflect on it and write it down and say, oh, well, I'm going to try this again, maybe in 30 days, right? Or maybe in 60 days or after this break, we'll try it again. But, and it might work this year and it might not work next year. I think just keeping, just keeping being really observant, not just with data, like how are your students responding? And and taking a step back and not teaching the program but teaching your students you know the old saying really are, who are you teaching how are they responding i off one of the things when i mentor students or new students in our building like i don't understand that this data is telling me what in the world does it mean and um I tend to get a little microscopic on some of those things. Right. And I have this big, long data sheet and they're like, I don't even know what that data sheet meant. Like, like, can they sound out a word or not? (laughs) I think, you know, knowing what are the key pieces to move them forward and move them backwards and things like that. So, um, for you know, how do I, how much do I need to differentiate how much not um, common practices and knowing that you're not, you're not going to be in trouble for anything. It's okay practice is just like you're having your students practice it's trial and error it's it's about making you know mistakes where maybe you said do 8 or 9 problems but really you should have said 3 or 4 right now and then move to 8 or 9 and those are the things you learn but paying attention to how that student not only looks on paper and data what really, like, what does their body language look like? Are they excited? Do they get up? Do they participate? I think that those things, those whole child behaviors are so much more important right now, especially with social emotional learning, than data is going to tell you.
0: Yeah. And so much of good teaching is adjusting on the fly, right? it really <laughs> be like, you know, curious and open-minded and really sort of paying attention to then be able to adjust on the fly, which is really just, it's hard. Yes.
1: Yes. And I think being able to relay that where being a new teacher and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to be on this page, you know, this week, I think being able to say to an administrator or an instructional coach or whomever it is that you, you know, you are talking with, to say, hey, listen, I really know my students and I need to reteach this lesson because they did not understand it. So I'm going to be a little bit behind the other first grade teachers. And knowing that that's good teaching, Mm. that doesn't mean it's bad teaching. That to me tells me more about you as an educator, that you know what your students need. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, knowing that there's two students that didn't get it and you have to move the rest of the class on, but then you're going to see what your outliers are. Like what? Are, who are your your support systems in your building that can help catch those two students up. Mm-hmm. And being able to just say, I, it's okay, but I have to move on with the rest of my class because I also have to teach them. So, you know, finding a really good balance.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. And, it, and it's so hard to, to know, that, you know, when to... Uh, move on and when not to. Um, I want to ask you too, Gina, so you've been in this profession, obviously a really long time. What has sustained you? What are the things that you do personally that really sort of in terms of self-care, keep you um, sustained and motivated and, and as passionate as you are? one of the things that sustains me is research. And
1: unfortunately that's a little bit of a sedentary um, movement. I used to run a lot. My husband and I used to do a lot of half marathons and things like that. And then kids came and then um, he coaches, our kids play softball. One of my daughters is going on to play um, college softball next year down in Detroit. So I think being able to travel through a little bit through family and friends, and then being able to maybe even meet people in other school districts while we're on some of those, you know, while we're traveling and to meet people through the networks I've built. And then I get excited to go see what another school looks like and what they're doing and what, you know, what are in the hallways and how are they building student leadership and teacher leadership things. Um, I think people, people drive me and I, I tend to avoid the people that just are in it for other reasons, and I te- I tend to get a little excited when I find someone else that like just gets it, and they're just as excited to be there. I you know my friends kind of chuckle, and my husband calls me a complete educational nerd, and I and I am not offended by it because he's an administrator at a high school here nearby, and um, he gets the tough parts, and uh, you know he's very secondary, I'm very elementary, and I think we find that balance together. Having those conversations also, I think drives having a spouse in education also makes a huge difference. Right. And I have some really good friends in education and I know that I could call them up and be like, wow, the latest research says this. And they would totally like give me five minutes of their time because they know I need to talk through it. <laughs> and I I think just I don't ever plan on retiring. I Even if I have to teach from home and, you know, in my fuzzy slippers and log on every single day because nobody wants to see me when I'm 104, I, I just, I can't imagine. I think this is my purpose. My kids see it. They appreciate, they respect it. Um, everyone I just have an amazing support system. And I don't, I know I wouldn't be where I am today or be able to do half of the things that I do today without my family and friends.
0: That's important. Support systems are huge. Yeah. People, people. I love the people. focus. And the last question for you really uh, piggybacks on this, which is why do you teach? Oh gosh. I That's a hard one. Like it's the simple hot.
1: questions, right? Like I can tell you, I can answer a lot of the complicated questions, but the <laughs> ones are, why? Because I get to, mm. because I, because I, because I, I know that it's something that I am meant to do. And I like that I get to straddle a little bit between the K-12 world and even the great start world and even the higher ed world, because it just gives me that vertical and horizontal perspective and helps me figure out what I, how I can contribute to the world next, because I just feel like there's, we all have something to contribute, right? And whether it's the right time or the place, I just want to make sure that I'm contributing to the profession as well as the next person is.
0: Mm, I love that. It's so beautiful. Perfect spot to end <laughs> with. Thank you so much, Gina. This was such a great conversation. Um, and you said you have a website. Can can folks go I to do. It's, it's just com. Okay, <laughs> awesome. So they can find you there. They can find you in Uppercase. Awesome. Oh. Thank you so much. This was terrific. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Uppercase Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Find us on the web at uppercaseteach.com and coming soon to an app store near you.